0: You are listening to Mindful in America. I'm your host, Lyra Stone, and I am on the road again after spending a week, over a week. Gosh, how long has it been? It's honestly very blurry in my mind, but I spent quite a while in New Orleans um, just exploring the city and living it up and just spending way more money than I intended to. I am convinced that New Orleans is really kind of like that toxic, wild kind of relationship that you keep going back to when you probably shouldn't. And, you know, he leaves you maybe satisfied in some levels, but also like, you know, robs you a little bit and definitely, um, causes a lot of dysfunction and internal issues inside of you to come forward. It's not a gentle city, I will tell you that. It's also not a city like anything else in this world. For anybody who's been to New Orleans, you may know that already. And for those who haven't, you probably have stereotypes or impressions of it that are probably completely unfounded, I don't know. Oftentimes, when people think of New Orleans, they think of this kind of den of iniquities, this dirty town where people go for Mardi Gras to, you know, flash their tits and throw some beads and get really drunk. Now, this is all valid. (laughs) Although, I think it was like, what is it, the Decadence Parade? I hear that one's much more sordid. But anyway, this is all a side note. Uh, Yes, that is true. If you go to New Orleans, you always have the option of going to Bourbon Street in the middle of the French Quarter which is a lovely street full of bright lights and excitable people. Um, it's, it's sectioned off so you don't have cars going through that particular drag of the French Quarter, which is kind of nice and definitely needed given how drunk people get there. And um, I, uh, I, I really like, I guess, some things about Bourbon Street. You know, it's it's, it's a part of the tourism experience, but I, it's also a very smelly and empty, in my mind, part of the tourism experience. And I will be very spiritually woo in this podcast, just, you know, spoiler alert, heads up. Because you do feel it, I think, in your bones when you're in New Orleans. You feel the shift in the vibrations when you leave certain sections of the city, you leave certain areas in the French Quarter even. And Bourbon Street, that low frequency, that low energy, it just really hits you. It's um, it, it's definitely low energy. And I'm not necessarily condemning low energy. Sometimes low energy is where people need to be. They, I mean, literally being drunk and running around and kind of, you know, forgetting your, appealing to your primitive self. It's something that people have... Been doing for a while. They've even like delegated rituals and, and holidays specifically for that very thing um, in ancient times, and I guess even presently, if you consider Mardi Gras. Um, New Orleans, however, is obviously so much more than Bourbon Street. Oh my god, yes. It is um, an entity in and of itself. I really feel having lived or lived here for a week now or so. And experienced oof, quite a plethora of, of, of different kinds of persons and sights and energies. It, it, it is a gumbo pot in that there's a little bit of everything here. Um, everyone from everywhere lives in New Orleans. Um, obviously, it's got a strong like Black American influence that permeates. Them. It is the kind of home base of voodoo and hoodoo in the United States and that's everywhere. In fact, I went and saw a, um, a voodoo priestess while I was here in new Orleans. I actually saw a few fortune tellers or I don't really want to put her in the category of fortune teller. I think she would be very offended and tell me very bluntly, she would be offended. She's not a card thrower or anything like that, which is what I do. I do tarot and I have a small, small little tiny gift, nothing compared to her, of course. And, um, but she, she, she's a voodoo priestess. She's quite different from the, um, the card readers I also met and I, I did go see one in the French Quarter. Not to say that, you know, the card readers and the tea leaf readers are not, you know, valid or that they aren't in tuned with a spiritual force if you choose to believe that stuff. Um, it's just that obviously she's, She's a priestess. She's, she's a part of a ancient tradition and she's been um, initiated into it and has dedicated her life to it. And seeing um, Voodoo Priestess Miriam was a bit of an honor and also kind of confusing and um, a little intimidating. And It was a lot of feelings. And I went ahead and I purchased some oils from her shop and some things. And I'm almost suspicious about saying they work because I sometimes feel like if I bring it to attention, like it'll stop working. But um, I'm shocked at how um, how successful these things are. I mean, what even I purchased. I'm like, wow, these, these, these are legit, man. These are legit. Um, which is, it's, it's you know, she, she is kind of more the real deal. It's not at all like what you experience in the fortune tellers district. Um, when I went to her shop, which I think is kind of close to Uptown. I'm still learning all the streets and areas, and I'm not going to be able to articulate where they are at all well. Um, but I believe her stuff is... It's a, it's a it's a temple, so I think it's like the voodoo temple. If you could look up Priestess Miriam, she's very old. She um, was born in 1943, I believe. And so, um, you know, expect that. When you go in, you're going to be dealing with an elderly person who is going to decide to read for you or throw for you she she casts or not and it's entirely up to her and um, it is its own experience and um, obviously because she is a a voodoo priestess she has a very strong influence and very honored in the black community of america um like most spiritualists though i think she. Ethnicity, gender, all those things is completely irrelevant to her. She, you know, kind of sees beyond all that. Um, but, yeah, if you go in there, uh, you, you, you will be entering into some pretty interesting energies. It's a tiny little shop, and you'll just, you'll have to experience your own experiences and have your own thoughts on it. She, it's not cheap, just FYI when I went in though it was comical because I went in with a young man or I shouldn't say young man he was like my age I, I guess it was his energies that med, led me to feel that way um he was a nice guy uh actually great energy I liked him a lot in terms of just his his gentleness and obviously his dedication to his family he had actually gone in obviously for some love things and so he was looking for love and um she, she uh, priestess Miriam just kept cackling at it, not cackling, that's a terrible thing to say when you're talking about magic, but um, she, she was convinced that, you know, he just was very into me, and, you know, just, we had some compatible energies, which of course we did, but I'm, I'm a pretty familiar person with people in general, and I felt, energetically speaking, he wanted reassurance, and... Um, I do have some sassiness to me. That's like, you know, she even kind of, it's hard to describe her personality because she's kind of half in, half out of the world into the other world. So sometimes she kind of speaks a little in metaphors and she's just like, um, oh, should I leave the door open? She's like, oh, leave the door open and, you know, all the flies will come in. Can you just imagine all the flies and, and, you know, just carry all that energy? I don't know how to explain it because it's, I can't really explain it, you know, how she communicates, but, you know, I'm like an elderly person might. mine. Um, and, you know, um, you know, when she came out, she was obviously cleansing her space while we were coming in because it was like she was just opening up. I literally arrived at her doorstep as she was opening up, which was also, I think, a weird timing. And to go in with this young man who became very amorously focused in on me. I actually felt bad for him because I almost felt like it was some universal test because I wanted to talk to the priestess and he wanted to go get a beer with me. And, um, it wasn't anything too forward. He really was a nice, nice, like gentlemanly, polite young man. Again, I don't know why I keep saying young, but, um, it just, um, I was here for her, not for him. And honestly, I think he was very confused why he was even there. He kind of came in with, like, yeah, confusion. Um, not quite understanding what was going on. Not able to kind of sit with the kind of swirling oddities and energies of, of this Purdue priestess. He just wanted to kind of get um, maybe uh, an oil or something and, and just call it a day and he got this... um rather quirky old lady who, um, told him to let go of his illusions and, um, laughed at him and said that she would, um, preside over his wedding. And that was sooner than he thought. I don't know. She was a quirky woman. Um, and and he was a nice man, but yeah, he actually waited the stoop for me and I had to go out and even tell him, listen, I'm going to wait as long as I need to, to see the priestess. And, uh, and he should probably just go on and get that drink without me. I, I thought about going and joining him later, and I even made a small attempt at it, but, you know, I just felt like um, so much of my life has been about serving men and feeling obligated to them, and I'm trying really hard to no longer do that. I, it, it, and really, I shouldn't say men, like plural. It was mostly just a, per, a specific person who groomed me to be that way. And it's not their fault, but I'm trying really hard now to be mindful of my own boundaries and what I want now after I kind of had that part of me turned off and that part of me denied um, by a person who found it extremely inconveniencing that I had my own needs and thoughts and wants uh insane like yeah. So, I'm trying really hard to kind of just be like, yes, this I don't want to offend him. I don't want to hurt him. I know that will hurt him if I don't show up. But um you know, it's not really about his feelings alone. And he has to take those risks. And um I really do hate even inadvertently hurting people, even if it's for my own health and my own boundaries. I really hate it. And I think it goes back to sort of how my mom's conditioned me where I feel like, and it's what happened in my abuse story too, I can take the hit. I always kind of will say that in my mind. Well, I can take the hit. Well, I can be strong. Well, I can handle that. It's totally fine. Um, His feelings are more important than my feelings because I'm strong. I can handle it. Um, And for the record, that's often the case in abuse stories. So many people think of abusers as these intimidating strong men and women as these like cowering, or of course, you know, vice versa, I don't want to put it in gender, but you, you know, for the sake of of the fact that a lot of domestic abuse cases are male gender, anyway, male, female, male on female. But anyway, um, yeah, a lot of people, I think, see it as this big, you know, man beating on this small, weak woman and it's the opposite. It is the absolute opposite. And that's what kind of frustrates me, how people kind of try so hard to, um, wrap their mind around something when they're not even listening to it. Where they, you know, because we already view women as weak. We already view women in many ways on a general level as subservient and as less than. And so the idea of that being actually an aversion I think is, is harder. Because yes, of course, a man's a coward and he's weak if he's hitting women, of course. But it goes even a step beyond that cowardly, weak women, like cowardly, weak men, like my ex-partner who was hitting and, and sexually abusing me a lot. Um, they are always justifying themselves for it. And the big justification is usually that they feel that the woman can handle it, that the woman is there to help them regulate themselves, to help them feel better because they are so insecure and so afraid and it's really insecurity and and fear and all these like just low frequency energies that are driving them and the woman is often trying to operate from a higher frequency she's trying usually to regulate him to reassure him to calm him down she's like resilient she's kind of like taking it and and then just trying to because ultimately a lot of there was a ted talk on that and i loved how the abuse victim framed it she said um I thought of myself as a strong woman, you know, uh, taking care of a troubled man. And that was exactly how I felt. And there was no room in the relationship for me, however, to ever ask for help. To ever, um, you know, relax or, you know, have him embrace me or comfort me or help me. And there's something that cannot even be expressed when it comes to that to be constantly hypervigilant on edge for a person who is hitting you and a person who is like molesting you. And it's awful. And of course, you know, leaving is what I did, is what I chose. And it took a long time to do it. it took a long time to get out. It almost cost me my life. But um, yeah, it's, it's an unreal experience. And so now I look around me at the men I interact with and I'm just very mindful of of who they are and their energy, and I try really hard to put down boundaries and be friendly, but remind myself that I'm not here for them either. Um, and I'm learning, I'm learning this lesson, um, and I think it was conditioned in me in my childhood, and you know all the things that people have to go through when they're recovering from bad situations. I think this is also simply me being in my thirties. I think 30s become, is the decade of transfiguration, of transformation, where individuals start to really see themselves on a newer and complete level than they did in their 20s. Their 20s, your 20s are a lot of reactions. Your 20s is kind of a lot of instinct. You're just sort of figuring it out. You're, you're learning about yourself on a kind of almost rapid, quick-fire level, and um, Oakley, that shit, you know, just, just like instinct, kapow, kapow, trying to hit something, trying to unmask and unearth things. In your thirties, you usually have enough data. And also like your body, it's a little older now. You recognize, I think in a real level that you yourself are going to age. You're going to lose your youth and all the privileges that come with that. Um, you're going to be enter into the world of kind of, in some ways, support because society is structured to where we support one another. And obviously when it comes to our children, children, are our children and the elderly are going to get the most support in our society, our children, because we need to raise them up to be the next generation, the elderly, because they are feeble and they need assistance and aid, you know, as they exit the world. That's the circle of life, right? Takuna Matata, the circle of life. But anyway, um, you know, in your 30s, that's when you realize that you are no longer, in some ways, the focus of the youth culture. And you start to feel that in your 20s, sure, usually around the ages of probably like 24, 25, where you actually start to really actually age. You're not not—you're still growing up until 25. Um, so one could argue that you're still youth. Um, but by that point, in your mid-20s, that's where there is that first shift, that first bump that happens as you realize oh I'm gonna have to be a contributing member of society it's my turn to roll up my sleeves to help like the people around me to contribute my energy my thoughts my feelings my um, skills into whatever I can to you know help humanity or help nature or whatever you choose to do um, you know until you hit your late fifties or your sixties and then you kind of go into the new stage, which is going to be like the stage of where you kind of retire and you sort of go back into like youth culture if you're lucky and you get to have, um, a decade or, or several decades of, of, um, experiencing life again, but on a gentler slope because your body of course has slowed down and deteriorated. And, um, I've absolutely enjoyed, um, my twenties and being in my thirties again has been very illuminating. And of course this, this dramatic thing that happened to me, um, that was happening to me since my twenties, I met the person, my abuser when I was 24.
1: Um,
0: I, it's, it's, it's so wonderful to be free of it all. And it's been so wonderful on this journey, um, gosh, every day, like connecting to myself and, um, being free on a level that I cannot even begin to express, recognizing how lucky I am to finally have escaped this just horrific human and, um, how close I came to not making it out. And, um, uh, seeing the voodoo priestess Miriam was, of course, an interesting and illuminating thing because she is a very harsh woman. She hears things inside of you and inside of the earth or whatever. And she doesn't have a way to kind of censor it. She's just going to simply say it. There's no um, there's no gentleness. She, So she told me things that were just very harsh but kind of needed. I also feel like with all the readers, you have to take them all with a bit of a grain of salt. You should always hold true to your own beliefs and your own powers, even when talking to a spiritualist or talking to a medium or whomever. Um, They don't have all the answers. Trust your own intuition and your own magic. When I I went to Marie Laveau's voodoo shop, which is actually one of the most popular places in New Orleans. I believe it's actually on Bourbon Street um, it's a it's a very popular voodoo shop obviously you go in they have African masks on the walls they have all kinds of um, things for sale you know Greek-gree bags and um, they have altars to Marie Laveau and various <laughs> entities you are free to leave you know a cigarette um, a dollar bill Uh, things like that on the altar. Do not touch the altar. And um, you can also leave little petitions to her as well. Um, So that's kind of really interesting if you want to go to Marie Laveau's voodoo shop. It's one of the places that has an altar, two altars, I believe, to her. And, you know, there's no photography in there, so you simply have to go in there and um, experience it. They have a good collection of books. Um, They even have, like, the the Keys of Solomon. Um, They have wide a selection of books. And, and because it's voodoo or it, it's neither light nor dark, it does have some baneful um, stuff in there. Like, you know, as I said, um, people who are into the Goetia and, you know, demon summoning and things, this is real. Um, there, there are books, like, I think there's a book or two on that even there. I, of course, wasn't interested in that. I was mostly looking at at the tarot because divination is my major thing that I do in that world other than, uh, I guess you would call it, um, spirit healing. I can do that with the right people at the right time. If the right presence is inside of me. Um, not quite like the voodoo priestess. And I, it's funny too, because being in her place, my intuition was heightened to such a sharp, like point. Um, and it kept buzzing even even if I as I left her, cause she gave me um, I can't remember what's called, calcifer, I don't know, she gave me a thing to help me with um, a problem, and uh, she actually put it in her pot, because again, she has a pot with the charcoal that she like throws things in, and in, I've, I've done enough magic and enough witchcraft to know kind of more or less what she's putting in there, she's using more traditional voodoo methods, so I'm sure there may be difference, because um, I, of course, I, in some ways, my deity is Morgan's Lady Morgan. And, um, I have more of a kind of Celtic bent in some of my magic owing probably to my ethnic origins and ethnicity. I, it's not to say that white people can't practice voodoo. Um, I know of one man in new Orleans, he was a bartender at BJ's and he practices voodoo. He's been practicing voodoo. Since, since I know he learned from his grandmother. A lot of people, you know, voodoo is not exclusively black. Um, there can be, of course, lots of debate about that because it was, you know, I believe its origin is in Haiti and um, it is a very strongly African tradition, but New Orleans bred people, um, it's, you you learn, even if you're not black, it's not exclusively going to be only for black people. Um, I do know white people that practice voodoo. In some ways, I practice voodoo. Um, I I <clears throat> I, I, in, in my traditions, I, I can cross into voodoo. Because voodoo also crosses into Christianity. Like anything that's spiritual, there's usually a lot of tie-ins in a lot of places. And um, But anyway, I did get my cards read at Marie Laveau's voodoo shop. Um, it's expensive. Um, don't expect to be able to do things cheaply when it comes to fortune-telling. These people are the best in the United States. And they are very skilled. And they are worth pennies, but you have to spend pennies to talk to them. I would advise you actually not to, um, do anything that's too short. My first time, my first day in New Orleans, um, I went to a tea leaf reader for an example. It was at the tea room, which is again, also in the French Quarter, I think off of Charles Street. I can't remember. Um, um, or Charter Street, sorry. Anyway, um, I only did the a reading for ten minutes. It was a very short reading. He actually recorded it on a CD. And he was a nice, nice man. I liked him, but um, you know because it was so brief, and I don't think it's enough time to really get to know the person and how it all was set up. It it was it was a fine reading, and I learned a little bit from him. Um, but the second one I did was for 30 minutes and it was with a man who was around my age. Um, we actually had a lot in common, um, same favorite numbers, same whatever. We didn't go into, however, what was, what was a good sign with him was, is that he doesn't ask you questions about, Oh, what are you here for? What are you asking? What is your sign? Any of those things? Um, he lets you sit down and, Um, he hands you the deck, and I am familiar with tarot, which is great too, because then I can follow along with the reading, and know if he's kind of bullshitting me, uh, because he, yeah, because it's so, you know, you shuffle, and you draw for him, every tarot card reader has their own methods, as far as reading, his readings are different from my readings, because it just always is, always different rituals, always different ways, in some ways, to have people do it, and um, So, and I actually might take what he did away with me, but that's all a side note. He definitely told me very interesting things in 30 minutes. He told me, and in some ways I felt like he had to be telling me what I wanted to hear because it was all pretty positive. You can always be positive though when reading tarot cards to people, um, unless it's just simply too bad. The only person I've read tarot to on this trip that it was really difficult for me to see positive. I mean, I could still say it positively. But, um, even in, in I, obviously there's going to be adversity in that guy's life because there was the tower and there was, you know, the hermit and there was a lot coming up in his life. And, um, even the tower can be illuminating. In fact, I've gotten the tower now for the last two, three days. And I think I know what it's about. The tower for the record in tarot is the um, quite a quote-unquote worst card on the deck. Quote-unquote, it it represents dismantling and shedding um, things that you have built, being torn down. And so, some people really don't like the tower because it often means something very unpleasant and disruptive is about to occur. That will shake you up, and you will have to really adapt to it. And it's it's usually not fun it's not gentle. There's a lot of cards in the deck. Ironically getting death would be a much better card than the tower because death just simply means a new chapter is occurring and it is going to be happening regardless of what you do but it's more of a gentler new chapter while the tower often means discomfort and the removal of things that you might have kind of grown comfortable with. Things that you probably don't want to see going like, uh, like, you know, it's, they're taking away, it's taking away your crutches. If you have any crutches, or taking away a good friend of yours, or it could be a pretense of of potential obstacles and disaster in your future. Anyway, we read my cards and, um, my tower, the tower was also in there. He was, it was in the start of my reading and the universe finished it up. And I actually really did enjoy how he interpreted them. He was on point point. Um, since of course I know all the cards and, uh, he told me, as I said, all the things I wanted to hear. And that's always interesting when that happens because there's a part of me that goes, well, of course I'm paying you good money to tell me what I want to hear. But it didn't feel, um, like he was just simply flim flamming me in all honesty. Um, he, said things. When we first started, I could tell he was getting into the flow of it. This is again why I often suggest you do a larger reading that's like more money. Um, It took him a while to get into the flow of it. It took him a while to I think hear it, to narrow it down because I do get it. There's like a intuition with every person and it really takes a while to hear the frequency. I don't care how long you've been doing it. And um, he's looking at the cards and he's trying to figure it out and he's trying to solve the riddle, so to speak, of my soul of why I'm there. And eventually if he's a good intuitive, which is what I am, um, he'll start to say things like almost unconsciously. And I watched him kind of start to do that where he um knew I, I was on a trip, on a road trip to he knew that this was a very important journey for me and what I was trying to do without me telling him. And um he he knew a little bit about the pain of what would happen. And, and he, he definitely was reassuring about it. He's like, you did not create the tower. And you know, he had to look at me and make sure I understood that because obviously like there was no way for him to know, but he's like, cause it took him a while cause he was seeing the tower and he was like, okay, so that, you know, this happened. He's like, you did not create this, especially as the cards kept unfolding. He's like, this was someone else. I need you to not burden yourself with that. Um and you know he essentially told me I was going to be fine basically and the person that you know created the tower would continue to experience that in a very bad bad way which made me sad for the person but also it made me shrug and go okay well that's his karma I'm trying not to get too caught up in that because I have to push away from that now I have to move on with my life and be happy and free which is very strange um, so there you go. That would be another tarot card reading. So I had tarot card reading. I had tea leaf reading. And then I had I spoke to a voodoo priestess. So I definitely did the fortune telling of New Orleans. And New Orleans is not just magic, of course. That uh, If you aren't interested in that, you don't even have to interact with it if you don't want to. Um, I was talking to a a prostitute actually. Um, and, and she, she, she absolutely had no interest in that. And she'd been living in new Orleans for generations. And, um, so she was just like, I have no interest in that for the record. You know, we were just having a beer. That's new Orleans. You'll sit down and across from me with a lawyer. So I was literally sitting down with a, a lawyer and a prostitute, which eh, that's, uh, if anybody who knows me, hearing the story they know that that's not uncommon for me (laughs) and of course then a fratty kind of dude bro-ish 40-something man that used to be in AA started talking and then that kind of went a direction I didn't really want it to. Um, I definitely have met a lot of people and I've definitely experienced a lot of great food oh my goodness while I'm on here um, what's wonderful about New Orleans is it's brunch every day so for those of y'all that love brunch move to New Orleans it is a party city so every day is brunch And the the brunch places are so damn amazing. My favorite by far, oh dear God, by far was Bear Cat Cafe. Bear Cat Cafe, you can choose either light fare or kind of more like um, thicker, um, meatier, more calorie-dense fare. And you can choose between like the bear or the cat, I guess. And um, the food is phenomenal. They have uh, house-made kombucha that is just amazing. I got the, um, I didn't want, I wanted the ginger um, mango, but they were out, so I ended up with the coconut slime, which was a little disappointing. I really wanted the ginger mango, and they were already out of the watermelon mint, so know that this place is a pretty happening spot. Um, they have amazing offerings, most of it like locally foraged. I had, um, for example chanterelle and morel mushrooms sautéed in kind of a brisket jus sauce and or whatever you how do you pronounce that um and um with grits and it was creamy grits grits done proper let me tell y'all i know that people especially yankees have this attitude towards grits like it's some lumpy nasty meh but much like quinoa or a lot of things or you know risotto it really comes down to the preparation and if you know what you're doing and these grits, of course, when they're done well, are phenomenal. They soak up the juices of whatever's put in them so well, and they can really accentuate, especially with something like, um, like, like sautéed morel mushrooms. And I like grits as well because um, you know, like mashed potatoes. Take that. You can get them really creamy if you want, like make them like almost creamy mashed potatoes, but they are still going to kind of be starchy and compete with the flavors of the dish. I kind of enjoy grits sometimes because they are a good complement to them. They don't overpower them, but they do add kind of texture and just an additional quality. They really do play well with others when handled properly. Bad grits will traumatize you for sure. I understand that. But anyway, I had that and, um, creamed spinach and my friend ordered the roast potatoes, which were phenomenal. Anyway, great place. Um, definitely go try. I went to horns with the guy I had the tryst with who was, I don't regret the tryst in the slightest. He was very good at what he needed to be good at. um, (laughs) um, an actual sweet, mostly just handsome and, um, assertive person and that, you know, it was great to kind of have that New Orleans experience. Like, ironically, I almost felt like I, um, I jumped on that too early. I definitely thought he was very handsome and I, I loved kind of being swept up in the euphoria of kissing and lovemaking and whatever. Um, people don't need to hear too much of my sex life sordidness, but I did finally do that. I can mark that off my list. Um, and, you know, he had beautiful black curly hair and just, like, the most gorgeous chocolatey eyes. But was he um, a bit of a moron? Yes, a, b- a bit of a moron. <laughs> um, like most men who are in their early 40s, I think, um, living in a small... It doesn't matter. That wasn't why I was there. I, he, he was a pleasant ex- enough experience. And he, I, he obviously had a... I've met men like him and, um, they, they really do serve a pretty specific purpose for women. And that's about as far as it should be. Never be upset about that. Honestly, when you meet essentially a fuck boy, um, although when they're in their forties, I think the better term is lost boy. Um, (laughs) when it, you need to just accept it for what it is. Um, don't try to attach to it. I mean, the man literally was into ultimate frisbee and liked fish it wasn't I was not necessarily involved with him I enjoyed having witty exchange with him and I also enjoyed having brunch with him and I really enjoyed kissing him so that was the extent of that and the kisses were wonderful he was like oh that was that yep that's going to be a very good memory for me god I could have done that for hours and I pretty much did Uh, but anyway, we went to Horns, which is another great, 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 great restaurant. I would suggest the, um, Eggs Benedict. They did those very, very well. And their alcoholic beverages are relatively affordable. Like in everywhere in New Orleans, alcohol's all over the place. I went with my friend Paisley. Also, this is a really great place. If you want to go swimming in a topless swimming pool which I didn't know it was a topless swimming pool. My friend did not tell me and I kind of laughed at her and said, you should have told me I would have, you know, um, joined the locals. I I'm not ashamed. And that would have made me completely fine. And I would have been completely unconscious, like not self-conscious about it. I've done nude modeling. I don't have no problem with that. Um, but it's called drifters. I want to say, and it's kind of, I guess, a hipster, um, hotel is how it was referred to me by some other locals um, and the locals were very impressed by me in New Orleans because like I I really like to think I find the good places <laughs> and they're like how did you find this one how did you find BJ's in the bywater wait you went to Vaughn's or um, <laughs> I can't remember all the places I went to I went to Mayfair which was a great bar Honestly, though, there are thousands of them. You just kind of look around until you find something that seems... And every neighborhood has them. I really did love New Orleans, but Drifters, anyway, is uh, kind of a a hotel in a sketchy place. And the hotel's been renovated. has a kind of 1970s feel. You know, they've got painted, like, you know, paisley, like, I don't know, flowers, big flowers on their wall. And the pool isn't very big. It's like a five-footer, you know, small pool, But you mostly just go to chill, to drink alcohol before noon, because, of course, that's an option in New Orleans. And I guess to not wear um, a top, because, you know, we were actually, my friend and I, the only women without our tits, without our tits out, which I didn't mind at all. I actually thought it was kind of cool and very sisterhood-ishness to see all these beautiful booby ladies and also slightly enviable because some of them were beautiful and I was just like, man, I mean, you're beautiful, but I wish, I wish mine looked that good. Anyway. Um, so yes, if you want to go have a nice experience in kind of a hipster hotel, um, and take your tits out, or if you're a man, be very respectful of the tits, like, you know, don't be, like, just, you know, that's a thing. Um, go to drifters. Drifters was lovely really I went to so many fascinating places in New Orleans it's hard to even narrow it down as far as as just it's it's and it's also like a flower that just keeps opening up and I keep like layer upon layer upon layer of new experiences and new people and a lot of it yes does revolve around drinking which is kind of why I struggle with the place because I certainly have I'm, I'm no stranger to being a drinker um I, I like to think that I only got in trouble, we'll say, in trouble, one time, <laughs> and um, it was because I went to uh, Superior Seafood, which is a great place, it's known for its happy hour, so I go for its happy hour because they have, I think, 75 cent oysters, and they offer these um, slushies, these, they have very high-end um, slushies, basically, or whatever, they're called frozen drinks. And I ordered the French 75, which is a very uh, boozy and decadent, uh, you know, free freezer drink, uh, slushy drink. And during happy hour, the large costs the same as the small, and pretty much it's half off. So, I met a young woman um, who wanted her cards read, and in exchange, she offered me another drink because everybody offers booze as collateral. Even when I went to the brunch with the, the tryst guy, um, because our tables were late, because it's a pandemic and everything's under short staff, they gave us free um <laughs> Drinks. So it's really hard, even if you're coming into it with this attitude of, I'm going to be responsible, people will throw free drinks at you a lot. And um, this young woman who wanted her cards read by me, um, you know, offered me a free drink, and I was like, fine, I'll take another, you know. But honestly, whew, two giant frozen drinks of French 75 or whatever it's called was a lot for me. And then we ended up jumping in a lift, she and I, to a, her favorite bar and it just kind of got a little blurry after a while. I ended up playing pool with a number of people. I didn't do very well in the sense that I didn't win a whole lot, but these people in New Orleans play really good pool. People are very good at pool. Um, I only won, I won a game against Trist Boy because we went out for drinks after brunch, after other things too. And, um, But yes, pool is, is like, if you go to New Orleans, know that you're going to have to really up your pool game. I've been very impressed by the people. (laughs) But but anyway, so I just remember that night, um, I just, I I couldn't tell you. Uh, When I got into the lift, I uh, remember, (laughs) because I told him where my car was, I wasn't going to drive yet, but I don't know, it doesn't matter. You know what? It doesn't matter. It was, I finally had my I went too far New Orleans moment. Um, ironically, I lost my car in the French Quarter while well, stone sober because um, I mostly love to go to the French Quarter. Everybody should go to the French Quarter. That's the main tourism drag. That's where mostly the tourists go. And, um, but however, you go through there and you're going to meet all the buskers. There's going to be artists. There's always just so much energy and excitement in the French Quarter, and it, it's kind of magical in and of itself, like all the buildings have um, fake fronts, and if you wait for it, if you look really hard, you'll see a kind of courtyard sometimes, like if a door opens or if, um, you know a grate is left uh, exposed you can look back and they have these like beautiful courtyards like tucked away outside of the streets almost almost like its own hidden world in the French Quarter and I love that too because um, I wish I wish I was wealthy enough to get a home in the French Quarter so I could kind of experience I think the internal the interior world where people have these just giant garden sections, these big courtyards away from the front street paths. And, you know, the French Quarter, there is just a ton of things you can do. You can um, ride, you know, there's horses that you can be ridden around with. Tons of tours, ghost tour after ghost tour after ghost tour after ghost tour. Wherever you go in the French Quarter at night, you'll end up running into a group of, of usually, like, numbers of them it's kind of funny, you know, walking by as I am because I will walk by all these groups and I can just hear little pieces and pockets of each of these stories that they're telling and all of them are telling them a little differently or they're telling a completely different story about the same building. It's, um, it's, it's, it's kitschy. It's fun. I see why people do it. Um, they do have like the fortune tellers kind of section, which is just a little courtyard space, uh, where people just are table card readers. If you just, you could just go do that. Go to one of the table card readers or palm readers and, um, and, you know, tip them some cash and they will read for you. Or you can go to one of the proper shops that where the readers have been vetted. So there's, of course, the tarot people and there's, of course, also lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of booze. Um, Tons of um hurricanes and I'm trying to think of what they call it, the one that gets everybody messed up that you will only drink in Bourbon Street basically if you're trying to get fucked up. And you do I, I usually avoid Bourbon Street for that reason because you will run into belligerent dude bros who are just bumbling around with their white boy entitlement, not realizing that they're six foot three and they're barreling at people and they're quite intimidating and alarming. Cause they don't realize they're just out having fun, bro. Hey, bro. And it's just, Oh my goodness. It really irritates me, especially as somebody who's gone through trauma to just have these, like there are these two guys like one time and they're like throwing ice at each other and just like, like having a rip roaring time, but I am literally trying to anticipate their movements because I'm terrified that one of them's going to like run into me or hit me or something terrible is going to happen because I still have triggers. Um, and they don't get it. And they, they saw that I was all hesitating and trying to anticipate their path, and the guy's like, Girl, don't be mad at me, man. It's all good. Hey, girl. Hey, girl. And she's like, You know, I hate that. I'm sorry. That was a tangent, but I, I really hate that. And you will experience that in Bourbon Street. And you'll experience it with the women as well, who are, you know, kind of dressed in like really scantily clothed outfits and they're just sloppy and staggering around. I think it's called Hand Grenade. I think that's what it is. The the beverage of choice. Again, that's only in bourbon though. If you just kind of swirl outside of it, you'll get to a lot of cuter places. There's, there's high end places too, where you can sit down, like, you know, like I think one's called like vampire bar or something. And they have, you know, just nice, decadent little cocktails you can get. Sazeracs are popular there. Um, and then you just sit along the street, I'm very thankful I didn't spend a whole lot of time in the French Quarter. Uh, I definitely spent much more time outside of it, in Uptown, in Bywater, um, and other places. (laughs) Those are the only two I remember the specific names of. Um, I would suggest anybody go to Bywater. Bywater is where I think you're going to go if you're kind of more interested in maybe the hipsterness. Um, Uptown Magazine Street is very nice. That's where you'll get, I think it's definitely the local, it's a lot of local feels, but there's locals everywhere. Um, because as I said, it's all divided up into little neighborhoods and they all have their bars. They all have their grocery stores. They all have their little niche section. And I kind of like that about New Orleans too. Cause if you go into a new or different section, you know, I even, I remember when I was in this one place, um, which was next to Commander's so wherever Commander's is in the city and Commander's is right next to a very fancy neighborhood Um, I I actually went up to a house that I didn't even know but it was was used in the filming of Benjamin Button so I got to see the Benjamin Button house never watched the movie but mm, good to know Um, but I remember going into this place and having a wonderful time. That's where I met bartender, Terry, who was Irish. And we ended up having a lovely time and he was very smitten by me. And, um, (laughs) And I, again, I pumped the brakes on all of it because I was like, I already did my tryst, man. I already did my tryst. And it's funny because once I did my tryst, it just was like, bam, 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 bam. (laughs) All of this started happening. And I was like, is that, did they smell it on me? Is that what happened? I got laid and now they're just like all like ready to just line up and be like, where next? And I'm like, no, this is not... W does Dallas y'all I'm done or new Orleans. I suppose I'm done. I already had it. I'm, I, I I knocked it off my list. I don't need any more of this, but he was a sweet man. We had a wonderful, wonderful time. He and I, um, very platonically because he actually had just like had a, a moment with his, he split with his girlfriend, but I was like, I'm sorry, this is way too soon for you to be trying anything, you know, with someone else. Cause I mean, it had just happened and I'm like, that's way too soon, sir. You need to sit with it. And I am not going to be a part of someone's, you know, um, heartbreak. Cause that's, that's way too, like, that's too painful. I would be hurting a woman by doing that. Um, but, uh, he was a really nice man and he was very appreciative of women and I felt, It's safe with him in a way I haven't felt safe with a man in a long time. So again, it's been so uplifting being in New Orleans and having all of these kinds of experiences just popping and popping and popping and popping and um, just really living it up as I have been everybody should come here. It's not even, I discovered it wasn't even just the drinking and the music and the bars and the voodoo priestesses. Um, there's also just actually a pretty good outdoor scene. I, last time I was convinced there was nothing. I went to this like place that had crocodiles and it was just like really not very pretty, but, um, I guess now that I don't have my abuser tugging me along to places, I don't really think it's the best of ideas. I found the most interesting park and, um, it was a sculpture park, um, called, uh, Ooh, Sydney and Walla or Wanda. And you know, these sculptures are just gorgeous and the park is beautiful. And there's all these waterways where people in kayaks go, and there was a gondolier and there were little swamp boats off in the distance. And, It was an absolutely precious place, and I enjoyed every moment of it. And there seems to be a lot of those in New Orleans. Um, There was a Café um, du Monde there, which is where you get the beignets and and coffee. And yes, everybody should do that. I think it is just something you do in New Orleans when you come here. Yes, it's a cliche, but it is so worth it. The beignets are phenomenal. They're delicious. The coffee is good. And, um, yes, everybody needs to go to Cafe Du, um, du Monde and you can go to ones outside at simply the French Quarter. There are other ones you can go to and yes, have that experience. Beignets are delicious and ought to be eaten very quickly because they are only good when they're piping hot and dipped in your coffee. I usually get mine with some cocoa in it, but, um, yeah, the, being in New Orleans though, I have to say. there's no city, as I said, quite like it. It's, it's got its own pulse. It's got its own rules. Basically, you have to be an individual there. You have to be a free spirit there. They do not allow kind of in some ways conformity. Um, there's a kind of, almost a, a, a rule about positivity though. They really want you to be positive. Uh, they, they aren't super open to, uh, negative mindsets. And that's kind of interesting and they will, to a certain degree, the bartenders are so phenomenal. I've never met a more competent service industry in my life. Obviously everybody is so friendly and um, articulate and down to earth, very down to earth, but it is an inversion from the rest of the world. And that's difficult to explain. It's like, if you're poor, if you're queer, if you're a person of color, um, in some ways, New Orleans is going to be your Mecca. It's going to be a place where you can thrive there in, in some regards. There's less um, racial prejudice. I, in my experience, I could be totally wrong, but to me it felt like there, there was um, less racial division tension. There seemed to be more opportunity for other, otherliness, other peopleness um, you could come here and have a, a pronoun and nobody will blink at it. Um, my friend who works here, she actually works with the homeless cause there is a lot of homeless. There's a lot of poverty here. I will say that. Um, she, she works with, she's in the poly community. And so she works in all of these kinds of sections of persons who, focus on reclaiming femininity or exploring gender fluidity. And it's just, there's a lot of, um, of that here too, a kind of acceptance of newer ways of thinking, or at least acceptance of people for who they actually truly are, who have gone through that work of reclaiming themselves outside of like kind of the patriarchal, you know, white centric, whatever ways that we kind of have it outside of the world. Like, as I said, New Orleans, is like an inversion of that. And you, you kind of come in here. And if you're my family, like who's very conservative and obviously likes the sort of <laughs> the patriarchy as it is, um, they like how it it's, it's set up to, especially to my father's advantage, to my brother's advantages as straight white men. Um, they don't really, they go to New Orleans and they're aghast. They're horrified. They find it to be Sodom and Gomorrah. They find it to be the very epiphany of everything that would be wrong for them. But you know, for someone like me, like, you know, dirty foot, hippie type, who it's all for the betterment and equality and you know progress of humanity. I don't think any person should have less of an advantage over another person. And like, it just in general, I know people can go into the dynamics, you communist or whatever. I'm like, I'm not a communist. You're God. Absolutely not. I just, you know, want to see people have better opportunities and, you know, not be discriminated against in ways that are just completely unfair because the people that control the power dictate who they are. And use that to their advantage. A straight white male can get away with rape or murder or things that are egregious on a far easier scale, and not to that, you know, people should be able to all freely rape and murder and get away with it on the same scale. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's a real problem with um, people feeling believed and feeling embraced and feeling accepted and having the same entitlements and privileges and being able to walk into the room and feel just as confident that they will be taken seriously. And they don't, you know, we don't, we are still dealing with a lot of problems, you know, people who were enslaved persons for a long time, um, women who are still battling just to have control over their bodies to just, you know, be believed in matters of, of, of sexual coercion and rape and who are still denied, um, real healthcare, you know, like women suffer through things like endometriosis and whatnot and mostly get ignored, um, there's not enough medical advancement in those fields because people don't simply care. They ignore women's pain, medically speaking. I mean, we all have so many problems that we're trying to rise above. And obviously there's the queer communities and we can go down that long rabbit's hole of what they've had to endure as a community in the U.S. where to hold the hand of someone you love is to potentially be murdered. And so, you know, if all else fails, there's always New Orleans. And <laughs> those scenarios, if you ever just feel completely burned out, and alone and frustrated. There's always New Orleans. I will say that crime has increased there, but crime is increasing everywhere right now with the pandemic, with the, what happened with us having, you know, a dictator in office for four years and everything that's kind of gone on. America is very much burned out. And, you know, there's just a lot of of racial tension, obviously. And, um, it's, it's, the pandemic caused, I think a lot, like in the rest of the world, a lot of desperation, a lot of mental health issues and, and all these things. So yes, crime is on the rise pretty much everywhere. Um, new Orleans is no exception to that and it's already kind of changing the city and people, you know, I listen to people talking about it cause it's their neighborhood. It's what they love. They've been here for generations. So it's, it's definitely a concern for them being here in new Orleans and seeing it change. Um, And I love that. I really do think that that's a sign of a healthy city when you see people who have been there for generations and don't leave. Um, Because, as I said, Nashville, you can't find anybody who's a local there. And same with Asheville. There's just so many influxes from other parts. And that's probably to do with just the exploitive nature of people exploiting, like, kind of mountain, rural Appalachian towns. Appalachians kind of historically had that problem but there's just also the fact that it's a good sign though. People in new Orleans are very loyal to their city and they love their city, but yeah, the the crime and the poverty are actually the two major strikes for me. The poverty is really hard to watch and hard to kind of interact with and deal with. You do have to kind of be, you have to have some common sense in the city. Everybody does. Um, if you get completely shit hammered in a local bar, and it's two in the morning, you probably don't want to go just staggering around anywhere. Um, you need to have a sense of direction and your surroundings, especially if you're a woman. And um, you know, just basic stuff. Don't accept drinks from strangers. If you know, especially if it's an open drink. Um, it's it's really. There's been a lot of carjacking. So many people had kept warning me about that while I was in New Orleans about carjackings. They're just like, be careful. This is happening everywhere. There's a lot of this going on. So um, it's not the safest of places (laughs) anywhere. And most a lot of the intersections, because like it really the roadways are just gnarly. Driving through New Orleans. Another reason you should not drink and drive other than the obvious reason, which is don't drink and drive. Um, is new Orleans roadways are nuts, (laughs) even sober. You will at some point go down a one way. And I did at one point go down a one way briefly. I, you know, I actually think I did well (laughs) considering it seems like everybody has, I, I literally when I was sitting at Vons, like for example, with them, Trist boy and other guy and these French people that I met. And then this woman who was named after an Indian goddess, she was great. Um, I'm looking out at the street and it's a one way and like just sitting there and just listening to the locals, just kind of just be like, go the wrong way up oh, there. It is again, just really getting into it like the wrong way, wrong way. I'm like, yeah, that's, <laughs> that was me at one point. The roads are very, um, s- divided up in strange places. Um, it's, it takes forever to get just three miles because it's all in a weird, cause it's an old, old city. You know, I think when, when was it founded? 1500, 1600? No, it's an old city. And, um, you know, the interstate is also just very wonky and it, it raises you up on these really high, high, high platforms and then like swoops you down and it's it really feels like being on a roller coaster sometimes and how wonky their roadways are. And, so, and also, of course, people who drive there are going to get impatient. They are very fast drivers. Um, some of them will just weave in and out and in and out. Um, it's uh yeah, you got to you got to keep your wits about you on the road. Um which again, I need to emphasize, no drinking and driving. Don't drink and drive in general, but you're especially going to get screwed <laughs> in New Orleans <laughs> because it really takes every bit of concentration to get through and um to have this <laughs> happen. Anyway, I am now concluded with my adventures in New Orleans. I've been Um, I've been, I'm, I'm heading now to Pensacola, Florida. I'm only going to probably be there for lunch. I'm going to have lunch with a friend and move on because, uh, simply put it's 4th of July weekend and any hotel is going to cost me quadruple the amount of money it typically would. And I don't really want to spend, you know, $400, for example, on a super (laughs) eight. So I'm actually going to just keep driving. I'll drive. I'm going to be driving for um, a long, long, long time. I think to get to Jacksonville, Florida, which is where my parents' home is, because I'm going to recuperate there with my parents, um, is seven and a half hours of driving. So I will be on the road for quite a minute, and in fact, at the moment, I am in standstill traffic, and um, it's, uh, it's not the greatest way of starting out. I really think New Orleans is secretly trying to keep me in its clutches, uh, which is a good feeling because some people, I think, when they go to New Orleans, New Orleans spits them out. It doesn't. Um, necessarily want them. And being in New Orleans, I have felt both. I have felt such a seesaw. I feel very bipolar here. In fact, it rips into you. At least it did for me, which is kind of what I needed. I needed to kind of really confront some things about myself and some things about, and it just completely, wow, um, mowed me over. Uh, which is what New Orleans is just so well known for. Uh, people should always go there and, and feel free to dress in brightly colored outfits because everybody wears bright colors um, and multicolored dreadlocks, lots of dreadlocks. Um, I I would advise anybody to go to this bright and shining city. I'm a little bummed I'll be in Florida soon. Florida is an interesting state. I know it's gotten a lot of bad press recently, um, with like big mouth song, anything goes in Florida with people always seemingly posting some article of some person doing something strange in Florida on bath salts or something. And I find a lot of that kind of nonsensical Florida is the same as any place. It's got good features and bad features. It is isn't a weird fluctuation because Florida used to not be very like highly populated. You know, people who lived in Florida were pretty much just locals. And you know, you have the Miami section, which is obviously way more, um, you know, Latino, um, Cuban, et cetera, influence. And then the more North you go, they say the more Southern it becomes, like that's where you're gonna get more, more of a white influence, much more of that. And a lot of like kind of country rural, actually. I think a lot of people, Now we get the snowbirds, people from, which is what we call the Yankees from New England, um, going down to Florida. Like so many people from Massachusetts and various places wanting to retire in Florida, wanting to really exploit the fact that it's in a cheaper state with beaches. And um, and they're so rude. I hate to say it, but I, I have a real strong dislike for the snowbirds that come to Florida because they really do kind of just take over and really do a number on the environment because it's a very fragile ecosystem, Florida. Uh, And it it is a very uh, local place. A lot of Floridians have been Floridians, you know, for generations after generations after generations. And they are rural folk. They are Southern folk. They... Um, have their own traditions, their own ways of doing things. And it's also a melting pot like anywhere else. I remember last time I was in Florida going to this Greek section and having a bunch of Greek food and just absolutely, you know, just floored by this interestingness. But um, yes, I, I love Florida, but the uh, snowbirds have changed it a lot and not necessarily for the better. And I think they, in some ways, because they see these rural people, these locals, and they're, they're throwing a lot of shade at them and saying to them, oh, you're so roughneck. You're so, uh, all these things. And um, there, there is also some like racial issues there, too. A lot of Trumpers are in Florida and a lot of, of racists actually are in Florida, too. Um, I had a friend that would go into vintage antique places and just find blatantly racist stuff and not, I don't almost collect them and just be like, here's a postcard of, of a black man being eaten by a crocodile. See how he likes dark meat. Like, for example, I, I know I shouldn't even probably even speak it out loud, but you know, this would be an example of things that are just there and that you can find relatively easy. So Florida does have its issues here. I am like saying, Oh, but that's a great city or it's a great state. It is a great state. Um, because that's everywhere. I'm from Appalachia. Like it's no different. We all have, I liked in new Orleans, how I didn't have to actually deal with, um, racial, racial nonsense because I do live in East Tennessee where you do, you do absolutely deal with it. Um, and, of course, there is racial nonsense in New Orleans, too, but it's, it's much more equal there. Um, it's much more—there's still anger, the whole—you know, there's a lot of anger going on in this country in general. But um, East Tennessee and Florida is where you do see more of a white prejudice against black people. And because they are more of the majority in number, um, it's, it can be pretty hostile and dangerous in some ways. And we all have our ways of coping with it and dealing with it like women do, you know, when it comes to like rape culture, we all have to just kind of deal with certain realities. Um, but yeah, Florida does have that. And I think when people go there because of its sandy beaches, they expect something a little more high class. They expect something a little more sophisticated and that's, that's, that's not Florida. Florida's not sophisticated. Um, people hang out in the sorghum fields and they cut sorghum. They have, you know, like tiny homes that have been, and they raise cattle. I mean, it's just, it's, it's not, it's supposed to be, I think, sophisticated. It's, it's just its own state. And so people mock that and they don't see it as kind of just being simply a humbler environment. If you want white sandy beaches with high brow sophistication, well then go, I don't know, to, um, LA or, San Francisco or not San Francisco. It's cold there, but, um, go try some other places. Uh, oh, oh, go to Charleston. Charleston is lovely. If you're going to do something more sophisticated in Southern Charleston is a great choice. Um, but yeah, Florida is a little tacky and that's kind of what makes it so endearing because when you go there, it is a beautiful, 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 beautiful place, but yeah, it's, it's a little tacky. And you do feel bad for the mantises there. You will see, or manta rays, you'll see them. But the manta rays do have like cuts for the record from motorboats and whatnot. It's still an issue there. Um, but you'll see tons of beautiful wildlife and tons of, of, of birds and crocodiles or and all those things that one would expect. Whenever I go to Florida, I actually always seem to have a good time, a pleasant time. And I'm sure it'll be no different when I go. Uh, there today. Pensacola is actually, I've always enjoyed. It's more, it's going to be very different from New Orleans. It's, from what I recall, it's more yuppie, but it's kind of like redneck yuppie. (laughs) Um, Yeah, maybe I'd say redneck yuppie. Um, The wine is very affordable there. It's still got like some French influence. So, um, I remember last time I went there, uh, like enjoying kind of the wine selection. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a very affordable place. They have beautiful beaches and it's not as crowded as some of the other towns are. Um, so that's kind of cool. I wish I could stay there in all honesty. I'm really kind of bummed about the hotel experience, uh, because Pensacola I really do love, and last time I went there, I loved it. But alas and alack, it is what it is, and so I will be driving for quite a while. And Jacksonville, Florida, is where my destination is. And you know, there's tons and tons of jokes about Jacksonville. I will admit, Jacksonville is not a very exciting city. It's I think this I think it's the capital of Florida. But what shocks you about, it, or at least what shocks me about it, is there's just nothing going on. And it's downtown. Um, there just really seems, it's just, it's kind of a weird desert, a weird oasis. It's just, it's a, it's a suburban place. It's where you go to raise your kids and to, you know, just it's, it, it, in my mind and what I experienced, it's, it's, it's just where boomers go. And it's, it's got that vibe of just suburbia. It's a whole city of suburbia. And it's kind of makes sense that my parents landed there, <laughs> in all honesty. Um, but that's where I'm going to be for a little while. So I'm going to make the best of it. And who knows? Maybe I'll find, like I try to, some little granules, some little good little places to to land and enjoy myself. Keep listening to Mindful in America. I'm Lyra Stone.